Welcome to Fort William Baptist Church Audio Sermons. We're so glad you could join with us today. This fall, we have begun a new sermon series called Soteriology. During this series, we will aim to unpack how our God applies salvation to sinful men and women. We are returning to the great doctrines of a sustained and refreshed Christ Church since the days of the Apostles. With the great works of God before us, effectual calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification, our hearts will be stirred up to hunger more of the work of God. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Would you grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of John? John chapter 17 is going to be our text, and we're going to work through the whole chapter right away this morning. So this is our last sermon in the series on salvation. We have started early this fall, and we've been working away doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, and this brings us to the last one, glorification, the doctrine of glorification, and we're going to study it from John chapter 17. So would you give your attention to God's word as we read it? John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have, who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as, I, as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. O Father, we... Do ask this morning as we turn to your word and as we hear it and give our ears to it, that you would come and you would minister to us. Would you encourage us in the faith this morning? Would you lift up our heads so that we might look towards the future and see what is ours? Strengthen us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To be a Christian is to be frustrated. To be a Christian is to be frustrated. One moment you're on top of the mountain, and on top of the mountain you can see everything. Then in the next moment, somehow you're down in the valley, the bottom of the valley, and you can't see anything. One moment the sun is is shining on your face, you can feel its, its warmth, everything is okay. Then in the next, a dark storm cloud rolls in and covers up the sun, and everything is not okay. One moment you can see, you can can see with clarity. Then in the next moment, a thick fog comes, and you can't even see a foot in front of your face. To be a Christian is to be frustrated. And we are frustrated as Christians because our experience of God is always changing. Well, God never changes, and we have to buckle down on that and say, He can't change. This is true. Our perceptions of Him, our hold on Him, our view of Him, our experience of Him is always changing. And we use language to express this all the time, don't we? We say, God is near. We say, God is far. We say, God is present. Then we say, God is distant. We're trying to describe our experience of the Lord. And the scriptures themselves help us and give us ways of describing this always changing experience of God. The nearness of God can be expressed in terms of vision, what you see. So in Psalm 63, David tells us of his experience with the Lord. He says this, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So David is telling us he's had this experience with the Lord and he's relating it to us by what he has seen. He he went into the sanctuary and he, he saw the Lord. Somehow he saw his power and his glory. Scriptures also teach us that we experience God through our taste buds. So the scriptures call out to us. We know this invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the scriptures describe what happens when we taste and see what the Lord is good. Psalm 4 verse 7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And this can be put in terms of fellowship. We know Psalm 23 
It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. How's this psalmist experiencing the Lord? He is with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. But here's the thing. God is not always experienced like this. Our vision, our taste of him, our fellowship with him is often cast in a, a completely different set of terms. And so when we go to the scriptures, we hear all of this complaining language. We hear Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We hear Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We hear these complaints peppered throughout the Psalms. Even more, we hear language of despair. We find it in the scriptures. Perhaps the darkest passage of scripture is Psalm 88. And at the end of this dark passage, we get this word. The psalmist says this, darkness has become my only companion. That's how the psalm ends. And so if you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, you've likely experienced some of these realities. One, in one moment, it seems like you're with David and you've broken into the sanctuary of the Lord and there in the sanctuary, you've seen the Lord, you've seen his power and his glory and you're amazed. But then a week later, and sadly oftentimes just a day later, it seems that you can't even find the Lord. You don't even remember what it was like to see the Lord. And so instead of singing out praise and glory, there's this strain of desperation in your heart. You have these bitter prayers and you're praying, Lord, where are you? I want to see you. I haven't seen your face. What are you doing? Why aren't you close to me? So that's a bit dramatic and it is. And as we think about our lives, maybe... The heights of this and the depths of this don't fully resonate with you because you're just a bit more low-key. Sometimes our highs aren't as quite as high and our lows aren't as quite as low. But I think if you're a Christian, truly a Christian, you've experienced many of these changes of the soul. As you think about your life, certainly you know what it means to see more of the Lord. You go to the Word and you open it up and, and you, you just read a verse and right away the truth of the Scriptures comes to you. It, it arrives upon your heart and, and you know the truth and you're refreshed and encouraged by it in a moment. But then you go back to the same Bible, you read the same exact passage, you read it first and you read it again and again and again, but this time you go to that same, everything is shut up and shut off and nothing is happening. And as you think about this, I ask you, is this not frustrating to you? Doesn't this constant change of experience trouble your soul? And we can use stronger words, can't we? Doesn't this bring pain to you? Or we could say, doesn't this torture you? To be experiencing God in one way, then in the next day, or a week later, to have a completely different experience of the Lord. And so from all of this, we can say this, to be a Christian is to be frustrated. But here's the thing about that statement. It's true, but it's only temporarily true. To say this, we could say this frustration we experience is only true for the present day. It isn't a forever truth. And what the scriptures do is that they come to us and they begin to minister to our frustrated hearts because in the scriptures, God draws near to us with the word of promise and he begins to point us towards the future. Something is going to happen. 
And so listen to how God speaks to us in the scriptures. He says this in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So think about this with me. If you jump into the sea, you put your swimming trunks on, you put your swimming suit on, you jump into the sea, what do you find? You find water. If you jump into a boat and you start driving out onto the sea, what do you find? You find water. And if you stay in that boat and drive out for hours and hours, miles and miles, what do you see on the sea? You see water. In fact, you stand up and you start to look everywhere and all that you see is water. What's the Lord saying to us in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14? He is saying, he is promising that the whole entire creation will be permeated with the knowledge of his great glory. Just as the sea is permeated with water, so too this this present world will be permeated with the glory of the Lord. Every square inch will be jammed full. Every direction you turn, you will see it and experience it and know God's glory. Another promise, Isaiah 60, verses 19 through 20. Isaiah says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah is using this imagery that we are used to. The the sun rises every morning and the sun sets every evening. There's day and there's night. That's the way the world has worked from the very beginning. But the Lord reveals to us in these verses that there's going to be this interruption in this very basic pattern. No more sunsets, no more sunrises, no more darkness, just pure and never-ending light. In fact, the very sources of light that we're used to, you go out at night, you see the moon, During the day, the sun shines. These very sources of light are going to be eclipsed by a greater source of light, far greater, far brighter. The very glory of God himself will be light. We've got Habakkuk 2.14. We've got Isaiah 60. And then we've got a promise from the Apostle Paul, and he is summing up what all of these prophets wrote about. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul is, is writing to a church that is troubled and suffering, and he's, he wants to encourage them. And so he gives them this promise. He writes, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here's Paul. He's writing to this church, and we can just tell that his imagination is stretched out to the max. He is reaching out, trying to, trying to paint a picture of this coming glory, and he's struggling to find words. It's for good reason. This massive glory that's coming our way is beyond our scales. Our scales can't measure this glory. It's of a size. We can't get our arms around it. We can't wrap our minds around it. This glory that Paul describes outstrips, it surpasses every human category. Why? Because Paul says it's of an eternal and infinite quality. It is the very glory of God. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We've got these promises in the scriptures, and all of these promises drive us and point us to the doctrine of glorification. 
So the doctrine of glorification of all the doctrines that we've covered so far in this series, I think is the hardest one to nail down with words. And it's the hardest one to nail down with words because this doctrine is so big, it's, it's so expansive, it's so wonderful, and importantly, it's so unknown. So just think about it. We can speak with accuracy about faith. The scriptures teach us about faith, and not only do the scriptures teach us about faith, but we experience faith. We're practicing faith this morning as we're receiving God's word. We can think really clearly about regeneration. We see it taught in the scriptures. Even more, we've experienced it ourselves. We can say, I was once dead of my sins, but now I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. But as we think about glorification, no one has experienced it yet. Not me, not you, not even the saints who are in heaven with Jesus. No one has experienced glorification yet. And so here is a feeble attempt at a definition. We're just trying to, trying to paint a little picture of it. So glorification is the final act of salvation, where the glory of God is fully and finally revealed, with the result that all creation is renewed and recreated. And this has specific importance for God's people. They shall fully and finally resemble the image of the glorious Son of God. So when we think about glorification, we have to say it's it's the last piece of salvation. It's the final act. And what does this this doctrine consist of, this final act? Well, it's the unveiling of God's glory, which is going to renew everything, and especially God's people. We're going to look like God's Son when this glory is revealed. And so we can shorten this up and we can say God saves sinners. How? Well, he saves sinners by glorifying us. God saves sinners by glorifying sinners. So this doctrine is big, it's expansive, it's wonderful, it's also unknown. So here's the question, well, how do we go about trying to understand this doctrine? Well, as we think about it, there are many different avenues we could pursue this morning. We could pursue the avenue of the renewal of all things. So that's really important for the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, talk about the renewal of all things in Jesus. We could also talk about resurrection. That's important for our faith. It's essential. 1 Corinthians 15. We could also talk about the new heavens and the new earth, that great hope. That's how the Bible ends. Revelation 20 and onwards. However, as we think about all of these matters, new heavens, new earth, resurrection, renewal, there's one matter that is essential to all of this. In fact, as we think about it, there's one matter that makes all of these work and come into being, and that matter is the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to think about specifically this morning. So we're going to go to John chapter 17, and we're going to think about the glory of Jesus and how it unveils glorification. So John chapter 17 is an important chapter. In this chapter, we get to listen to Jesus speak to his Father. So in this chapter, we get to learn what's on the heart and the mind of Jesus. And we get to know what drives and motivates Jesus. We get to understand Jesus as he goes to his cross. And what we learn in this prayer is glory. So let's try to work through the prayer really quickly, the whole thing. So I think this whole prayer builds and grows around the theme of glory. So Jesus begins his prayer by petitioning the Father for glorification. Verse 1, he says, 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus goes on. If you go down to verse 5, Jesus pleads with the Father saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the theme of glory is building. Jesus looks to the cross in the resurrection and he's asking, Father, glorify me in those events as I glorify you. And then he's looking forward past those events to his ascension to the right hand of the Father and he's saying, crown me with my eternal glory. There's more. We go down to verse 10. Jesus keeps talking about glory and here he's meditating on the fruit of his work. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And so we see this theme, it's building, it's building, and it's building. And then Jesus goes back to glory in verse 24. And nothing what we have read so far in this prayer prepares us for this. Listen to what Jesus says. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the plan for the rest of our time this morning is to look at verse 24 and patiently work through these words. And as we patiently work through these words of Jesus in verse 24, we're going to find two things happening. First, we're going to understand the essence of the doctrine of glorification. We're going to look at the very center of it all in verse 24. And something related, when we're studying, that's going to happen to us. Second, when we look... At the essence of glorification, God's going to draw near to us and he's going to minister to our frustrated hearts. He's going to encourage us in the faith. So let's look at these words. So Jesus begins and he says, Father, I desire. So we already noted this, but it's, it's worth repeating and it's worth thinking about. The Lord Jesus has desires. The Lord Jesus is a real person, and he really wants things. And so Jesus didn't come into this world as a a robot, just mechanically obeying the Father. No, Jesus came into this world with passion, with energy, with zeal. The Father placed a work in front of Jesus. You need to accomplish this. And this work consumed his heart, his soul, his mind. So Jesus says, as he begins this petition, Father, I desire, I yearn, I want. And these words have to color our whole understanding of the gospel. Just think contextually with me for a second. Jesus utters these words, Father, I desire, before what? Well, in the next chapters, Jesus is going to what? He's going to be betrayed. He's going to go on trial. He's going to be beaten and mocked. And then he's going to be crucified. So what does this mean? Think about it like this. Jesus endured and participated in all of these events with something dominating his heart and his mind. When he was betrayed by Judas, there was something on his mind in that. When he stood before Roman officials, being tried unjustly, there was something consuming his his heart. When he was whipped and lashed, when he was strung out on the cross and nailed there, there was something upon him. He was desiring something. Father, I desire And that draws us in, doesn't it? What's Jesus wanting? What's controlling his heart? So Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. 
And so we see that Jesus' desire is fixed on a certain people, a specific group of people. He prays for those whom the Father has given to him. And so here's Jesus, just moments before his passion, a whole bunch of events are just going to unfold. It's going to be like chaos. And right before all of this, Jesus presses into what kind of language? He talks about predestination. He dives right into it. And this makes good, solid sense if you think about Jesus in his ministry. Because throughout his ministry in the Gospel of John, he's operated with an understanding that the Father has given, donated, committed a people to him. And Jesus has understood that as he has gone about Israel preaching the gospel and doing these signs, that the Father is at work drawing these people to the Son. And Jesus knows that he has received this commission from the Father, that he must not lose any one of these people that the Father has given to him. Jesus is the good shepherd and he must keep all of them. And so here, right before the passion begins... Right before he goes to the cross to die for his people, what does Jesus do? Well, he pours out his heart for the people that the Father has given to him. So what does this mean for us? Well, sometimes when we hear about predestination, that the Father has given a people to the Son, sometimes that puts us on our heels a bit, but it shouldn't. Rather, as we think about this prayer, it should activate and encourage our faith because think about this. Verse 24 is not a wish list. Jesus isn't approaching the Father and saying to the Father, I think this is a really good idea. I think this is a really good idea. Would would you see to it maybe? No, this prayer at verse 24 is caught up in the sovereign purpose of God. The Father has donated a people to the Son, and the Son is going to keep these people, and in His keeping, He is praying for them, and we can be assured that this prayer will not fail. It's caught up in the sovereign plan of God. So Jesus goes on, praying for these people. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So Jesus is starting to get specific here. The good shepherd desires to have his sheep with him. The teacher desires to have his his disciples with him. The redeemer desires to have his redeemed with him. And these are words we ought to sink our teeth into. Because in the doctrine of glorification, we're, we're, we're casting our eyes forward to an age of, of glory, and we are met with this good news in verse 24. Jesus desires that we would be with him there. It's such a simple truth. Jesus desires his people. He desires you. What's Jesus' plan for the never-ending ages? To have his people with him. Jesus wants us to know that. But there's a reason Jesus wants us with him. There's a purpose to this fellowship that's never going to end. Listen carefully to Jesus. He prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me. And so we ask, well, what makes being with Jesus so good? What makes this a good idea? Why do I want this prayer to be answered and fulfilled? Well, Jesus answers. We will get to see him for who he is. That's what Jesus is praying for if we put it in really simple terms. Jesus desires his people to be with him and to really see, really understand him. 
So Jesus is teaching us that this coming age is going to be centered around what? It's going to be centered around the glory of God shining from his face. Or to put it another way, people seeing him for who he truly is. So Jesus prays to see my glory. We need to think about this because it's worth our reflection. We can say four things about Jesus' request. What does this sight mean? Well, first of all, we can say it's going to be a clear sight of Jesus. So as we think about our life in the present age, we, we see everything and it's, it's obscure and opaque. We go to the scriptures and we, and we look to find Jesus and we do it by faith and it's just a bit hazy. 1 Corinthians 13 says, we see in a mirror dimly, we see in part. But the sight that Jesus has in mind as he prays for us in verse 24 is a perfect 2020 vision. Or as Paul says, this vision of Jesus is going to be face to face. No more shadows, no more darkness, no more haziness. We're going to see Jesus clearly as he is, completely unveiled. Second, the sight of Jesus is going to be permanent. And this is good news. We're going to see Jesus truly, and that vision is never going to stop. It's never going to end. There's not going to be any interruptions or any commercial breaks. There's nothing that's going to come in between us and Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Third, this vision of Jesus is transforming. So just think about the sun. What happens when the sun rises? Well, all sorts of things happen. When the sun rises, plants begin to grow. The air gets warm. There's life. When the sun shines, there's life. And the same thing happens with the glory of Jesus. When the glory of Jesus shines, there is life. There is transformation. In fact, when we see Jesus face to face, in a moment, we will be changed forever to look like him. His glory will change us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us the truth about this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Seeing Jesus changes people, and it will change us. And so this vision of Jesus is going to be clear, it's going to be permanent, it's going to transform us, and fourth, it's going to satisfy us. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be fully satisfied. You can bank upon this. In the coming day, when you are with Jesus, seeing his glory, you will never hunger again, you will never thirst again, you will never suffer want again. There will be no pain or pain. In this seeing and from this seeing, we will be eternally fully satisfied. Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Speaking of this day, John says, They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory 
And as we start to step back from Jesus' words and what they mean for us, we can see what Jesus is praying for. We're a frustrated people. What is Jesus praying for? He's praying for the definite end of all of our frustrations. When this prayer comes true, there will be no more mountains and no more valleys. There's not going to be any more sun shining to have the clouds come in the way. There's not going to be any more fog obscuring our vision. Never again will we complain. Why do you stand so far away from me, Lord? Where's your face, Lord? Where are you? Those prayers will cease forever. And in this prayer, Jesus comes to our hearts even now and he begins to minister to us. He says, dear believer, I know that you're getting these momentary glimpses of glory, but know this, they will soon be banished forever. What is coming is a permanent vision of me. I know that your vision of me is so hazy oftentimes, but know this, that is not going to last forever. I am coming, and you will see my glory forever. Get this, I know that your heart is often cold and dull. That it's hard work oftentimes for you to pursue my glory, but know this, in the coming day, soon, you will be completely transformed, and your heart will always run after me. And know this, even though you're frustrated, I am coming to satisfy you, and you will see my glory. So this is precious good news. Jesus is giving us a great promise. Your frustrations are going to end. This is the best news of the whole Bible. Jesus is going to show himself to us forever. But here's the question. How can we be sure of this? This is so good. How can we bank upon this? How can we know that this is going to happen? We'll go back to the text and listen to Jesus pray. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Why? How is this going to work? Jesus says, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We have to pay attention to how Jesus prays because at the end of this prayer, he has this ground. It's like Jesus has this petition and then he's taking a great stake and he's driving it into the ground, holding this petition somewhere. There is a reason why this petition is going to work and Jesus points to this. The reason why this is going to happen is because the Father loves the Son. Why can we be sure of this coming day? Because the Father loved the Son forever backwards. Why can we be sure we'll have this day? Because the Father loves the Son forever forwards. Both ways of eternity, the Father loves the Son. He always has and he always will. And this is what Jesus banks this whole prayer upon. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And this is good news. Our hope of glory does not rest upon ourselves, our own work, our own worth. It doesn't rest upon just good hopes. It rests upon solid foundation, the love that resides between the Father and the Son. Jesus is giving us these words so that our faith might be built up. He's saying this is going to be happening. It is as sure as this. It is sure as the Father's love for me. And so there we have verse 24. And this brings us to the whole end of our series on soteriology. And as we think about it, this is the perfect place to end this sermon and to end this whole series on salvation. We ask, well, why? 
Well, verse 24 brings us to see what? It brings us to see the glory of Jesus Christ. This is what salvation is all about. We've worked through so much in this series. God made a plan. He made a plan before the foundation of the world to save sinners. That's what we looked at in the first week in Ephesians chapter 1. And we looked at effectual calling, how God calls sinners to himself. We looked at, at 1 Corinthians. And then we, then we looked at faith and repentance and regeneration and justification and sanctification and God's keeping of us. We've worked through all of these doctrines and this verse shows us what all of these doctrines are all about. From the beginning to the end and everything in between, it's all about the glory of of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Why did God do this for us? We can simply say, because he wants us to see his son. He wants us to see the glory of Jesus. So how do we end this series? Well, I think we can end this series with a simple command and a simple promise. So here's the command. Trust Jesus. That's the command. And this is a command for all of us Have you been walking with Jesus for 10 or 20, 30, 40 years? Here's the command. Trust in Jesus. Trust in this Jesus who who prayed in John chapter 17. Trust in this one. And if you've never trusted in Jesus before, here it is. Here's your calling. Trust in him. And we have to see that there's a glorious promise with this command. Trust in Jesus and all will be well. And we can say in light of this verse we studied this morning, all will be well eternally. So you trust in Jesus today. You seek out Jesus today. Here's the truth. You will get Jesus forever. That's the hope of Christianity. You get Jesus forever. So brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus and know this. All will be well eternally. So let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this verse. We are so thankful that you've recorded this prayer, that you caused it to go public so that we could meditate on it and think about it. And so we pray that even now you would strengthen our faith. We need our faith strengthened. Would you be pleased to do this? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.